What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Primetime Sports Podcast, hosted by Joey Mayalari. So today, I'll be breaking down the last week of the MLB and where the Red Sox currently stand before the August 2nd trade deadline. I'll revisit some of High and Bloom's biggest moves over the past few years as a Red Sox chief baseball officer. I'll share my thoughts of whether or not I think the Red Sox are winners or losers in each deal. And I'll also preview the MLB trade deadline with some big names being on the trading block, including Shohei Otani of the Los Angeles Angels. They are reportedly at least listening to office for him, although it's very unlikely they were to trade him. And then also Juan Soto of the Nationals, who supposedly today the Nationals are going to give one more contract offer to, whether it's today or tomorrow. And if you were to deny it, they will trade him by the deadline. So that'll be very interesting to watch. And then also, at the end, I will finish the episode by breaking down recent transactions across the NFL with some free agent signings, some long-term extensions, and then also a ton of retirements to go over as well. So to start off with the MLB, according to Buster Only, the Red Sox are making J.D. Martinez available at the trade deadline. He is on an expiring contract, so... With an expiring deal, you always want to trade a guy and get some value if you don't think you can win with the team you have now. And I'd expect the Red Sox to shop not only just J.D. Martinez, but also Nate Evaldi, who's on the last year of his contract. Rich Hill, free agent after this year as well. Michael Walker, another free agent after this season. James Paxton, I think he's a wild card in, to trade. I don't think it's very likely they were to trade him, but he is on a one-year $10 million contract with two team options for 2023 and 2024. If the Red Sox were to not think they have any faith in him for the future and they didn't really like how he's progressing or if they thought they could get more value out, out of trading him and trying to build to the future with prospects. You never know if they were to trade him. And then also Kike Hernandez, he's on the last year of his two-year $14 million deal. That's actually the second most money that Hyam Bloom has given out on any contract besides Trevor Story. $14 million is the second most money he has given out in a contract besides Trevor Story's six-year $120 million contract. So it just proves Hyam Bloom came here to make this the Tampa Bay Rays 2.0. But the Red Sox are not anywhere near a middle of the market or a small market team like the Orioles or A's or Rays. The Red Sox have to spend money. $14 million is the most money you've given out in a deal. The Red Sox need to just rip off the Band-Aid and start handing out contracts to Devis and Bogots. I don't know why they haven't, although I'm going to get into that in a second. I think Bogots is as good as gone. I know the Red Sox are saying now, and Bogots said as well yesterday, that the team told them they are not shopping him. But after the end of this season, I don't see him coming back in a Red Sox uniform, barring a spectacular comeback and somehow, you know, he ends up wanting to stay and the Red Sox give him a deal. I think he's gone. Devis, on the other hand, I think will keep him, hopefully. But if you look at the Red Sox have done over the last few years, $14 million, the most money they've given out, as I said, besides Trevor Story's $120 million deal. So it just makes me feel like the Red Sox will not be paying Bogots. They won't be paying J.D. Obviously, I think J.D. will probably be moved before the trade deadline. We'll have to wait and see what happens. I think Martinez is definitely gone, whether it's at the trade deadline or after the season ends. Then with Bogots, I don't think we're going to trade him now, it seems like. But I think at the end of the day, Bogots will be leaving the Red Sox in free agency after this year ends, after he can opt out. As for Devis, I think you have to pay him. But with the Red Sox not being inclined to give out any money, especially with Kike Hernandez as your second highest paid player over the last two years and change now with High and Bloom as your general manager chief baseball officer, it's just not likely that you're going to give out contracts to both Bogots and Devis. I think you're just going to pick one. It's probably just going to be Devis. But at the end of the day, you don't know. So one guy I mentioned was Kike Hernandez, who the Red Sox could potentially trade since he's on the end of his two-year contract is a free agent at the end of the season. He's currently on the 60-day IL with a hip injury, though. We can't come back until the second week of August, so there's a potential possibility that no one's going to want him anyways just because he's hurt until 
mid-August. But at the end of the day, someone could say, hey, we could use him in a playoff run and you know, use him as a, an outfielder or an infielder. He can play second base, he can play center field, he gives you versatility. I think there's a potential possibility the Red Sox were to trade him, but it's not very high. As for Christian Vasquez, Rob Refsnyder, both those guys are free agents after the season ends. Both could be valuable pieces on a contending team. Vasquez has been a very good offensive catcher this season for the Red Sox. One of the best players on offense at Red Sox consistently this whole year since we've had some injuries, obviously, with Devin's being hurt now and J.D. not hitting that well. It's really just been Bogots and Vasquez hitting well with Verdugo. Ref has been playing well all year as well, too. Both of them are free agents at the end of this year, so there was a potential possibility those two guys are moved. Both having great seasons. Both are 31 years old, so I think there's a potential chance that both of them will sign three- to four-year deals in the offseason. I think Ref Snyder could get a three-year deal. He's having a great year this year, and if it's not in Boston... I could see the Sox trading both of them for value. If the Red Sox don't see a future with both of those guys, Ref Snyder and Vasquez, since they're 31 years old, and maybe the Red Sox want to go younger at both of those positions, there's a possibility that the Red Sox were to trade both of them for value. But at the end of the day, I think you keep Ref Snyder and then Vasquez. If you were to say, hey, we don't want him you know, for the future, that's different than you move him. But at the end of the day, I think you keep Ref Snyder, and I think Vasquez has a potential possibility to move, but probably not a high one. And I think it really comes down to what you can get back in return. And no contending team is really going to give up a piece that could help them win now. And it's very rare for that to happen, where a team gives up a piece that could help them win for a player that could also help them win. It doesn't really happen often. It's usually prospects, especially for any guy that the Red Sox are going to trade, they're probably just going to get prospects back in return rather than a player that could help them build for now and build for this year. It's going to be building for next year realistically especially in the Red Sox position, because I don't think they have enough what it takes to make a run. But at the end of the day, it just takes getting hot, and anything can happen. But I'm just not sure about this team. Ref Snyder on the air, hitting 319 with four home runs and a 913 OPS, heading into yesterday's game. Vasquez heading into yesterday's game, hitting 277 with eight home runs and a 754 OPS. Both guys having great seasons. Could be used on any contending team. Another guy, Jackie Bradley Jr., has a mutual option for 2023. I don't see him back in a Red Sox uniform next year. As much as I love JBJ for his defensive abilities and then also how hard he's always trying. He's always giving it his all no matter what the score is, especially last week against the Blue Jays. I just do not see a chance for him to come back in a Red Sox uniform, especially considering how poor of a season he's having. And at the end of the day, I don't think the Red Sox have what it takes to win. So if a team were to say, hey, we'd like Jackie Bradley just as maybe – a defensive option in case something were to happen in the playoffs and one of our outfielders gets hurt, there's a chance the Red Sox were to trade him. I just don't think the Red Sox right now, I don't think this team has what it takes to win. And I think this team's in trouble. If you look at it, they're currently fifth in the AL East, a half game behind Baltimore. Heading into last night's game, the Sox were 6-17 and in July with a 261 win percentage, along 164 runs, scoring 88 runs with a minus 76 run differential, which is abysmal. Definitely... Doesn't help that they lost 28-5 to last Friday night. Obviously, losing 23 runs there doesn't help. But you're still at a minus 50-plus run differential, regardless of how much you lose by last week. If you end up losing that game by, let's say, 10 runs, rather than losing by 25, like the Red Sox lost 28-5, to oh, to so losing by 23 runs. If the Red Sox were to lose by, let's say, 10 runs in that game, rather than 23 you still have a minus 63 run differential. So it wouldn't really help as much, obviously, especially considering the Red Sox have been struggling pitching-wise in all of July. The Sox are now 2-5 and five after the All-Star break with a 286 win percentage after they won last night. 26 runs scored to 58 runs allowed with a minus 32 run differential after the All-Star break, which is awful. 
And losing by 23 runs last Friday night is definitely a big part of why it's a minus 32 run differential. But the Sox are just getting dominated by the AL East this year. And I'm going to break down some stats within the AL East in a second. But a minus 32 run differential after the All-Star break is just not a promising sign. I think that's a reason the Red Sox will be sellers at the trade deadline. This is the first time the Red Sox have been in last place since May 15th. They are 2-11. and Heading into last night's game, we're two and eleven in their last thirteen games. Now two and or three and eleven in their last fourteen games, and five and fifteen in their last twenty games. Heading into last night, the Red Sox are twelve and twenty nine against the AL East and are winless in twelve series against the teams in their own division, which is awful. The Red Sox are thirty one and forty one against teams with a plus five hundred record, and then for teams with an under five hundred record, the Red Sox are eighteen and nine. So they've been playing very well against teams under five hundred. When they face teams over 500, it's a much different story. Heading into Monday night, the Red Sox had a minus 54 run differential in their previous five games before Monday, which is actually the worst over five-game span in the modern era. And as I was talking about, the Red Sox struggles pitching. The Red Sox do not have a win by a starting pitcher in all of July. The last time the Red Sox had a starting pitcher win a game was Rich Hill on June 26th. That is one month and three days. The Red Sox have not had a starting pitch, a step on the mound to start a game and earn a win. One month and three days. That is ridiculous. The last one was Rich Hill on June 26th. I don't know how the Red Sox can let that happen. That's a month and three days. That's another reason I would sell with the deadline because this team can't pitch. I know there's injuries. I know Chris Sale's hurt and Nivaldi's hurt and Rich Hill's hurt and Walk is hurt. But at the end of the day, you think you got to have some luck and one day the Cutter Crawford or Winkowski or Brian Bayo touches the mound, or Nick Pavetta touches the mound, you'd hope you could win at least one of those games over a month. But at the end of the day, the Red Sox have not had a starting pitcher earn them a win in all of July. And the issue I have with the Red Sox is that not paying Bogots a Devas yet just proves to me that this team does not want to give up money. And if you look at it, the Red Sox just signed a 10-year agreement with Mass Mutual a life insurance company based in Massachusetts, to have their corporate logo as a patch on the Red Sox jersey for the next 10 years. And you want to know how much it was valued at? Projected around 170 to $200 million I saw a few days ago, so I'm not sure of the definite number. But starting in 2023, the Red Sox have the Mass Mutual logo on their jerseys, a patch of it, and it was a 10-year, around $170 to $200 million agreement. And the Red Sox don't have enough money to pay Devis? You still can't pay him? Still can't pay Bogots, which I think Bogots has gone to the end of the year no matter what? But they just do not show that they want to pay both of those guys. I know Bloom says he wants to, but the Red Sox do not prove that. With the August 2nd trade deadline being less than a week away now, it's only a few days, let's review some of High and Bloom's biggest decisions and moves over the last two and a half years. In February 2020, he traded Mookie Betts to the Los Angeles Dodgers for Alex Verdugo, Connor Wong, and Jita Downs. Downs and Wong are both prospects at the time. Both of them have now played some games in the major leagues, just about 12 games each. Alex Verdugo was the major league piece in that deal. Obviously, he's had some good seasons now for the Red Sox, one of the more consistent hitters over the last three years. But Mookie Betts this year just hit his 23rd home run, heading into last night, had a 265 batting average with an 867 OPS, still one of the best players in Major League Baseball. And if you look at what the Red Sox got in return, you got Jeter Downs, who's hitting 139 for the Red Sox in 12 games, heading into last night. He hit 217 for Worcester this season with 16 home runs, so he does have power and also had 18 stone bases in 67 games. But he just cannot hit for average. 217 with 16 home runs, 18 stone bases in 67 games. But the 67 games power with 16 home runs and 18 stone bases, that's impressive. But the 217 batting average is just what the issue is. He has a great glove. He has made some big errors, though. 
at the major league level now over the past week or two, but he's very young, so who knows if he could develop and maybe work on his hitting ability for average rather than just trying to power, trying to use his power. I think that's an issue for some guys where they try to use their power too much. And Andrew Benatendi was talking about that to Chris Gasper of the Boston Globe. He said that during the All-Star break, during the media day, he said to Gasper that he started working on just hitting for average, just getting singles rather than trying to use a home run swing. And it helped Benatendi out a ton this year. And I'm going to get into Andrew Benatendi being traded to the Yankees in a second, probably about 10 minutes from now. But the Red Sox just have not had any luck with those prospects, Wong and Downs, as of now. Wong was a former Dodgers third-round pick in 2017 out of Houston. He hit 287 with 12 home runs as a senior at the University of Houston in 2017. He also played for the YD Red Sox in the Cape Cod Baseball League in 2015. Played for Bourne in 2016. He had 24 home runs between high A and double A in 2019 before the trade to Boston. He's hitting 267 this year for Worcester with six home runs. And then for the Red Sox, he's hitting 286 for the Sox in 11 games between this year and last season. So only 11 games, playing six games one year and five games the other between the last two seasons. Then you look at Alex Verdugo, hitting 284 for the Red Sox for the past three years since the trade. The Red Sox have Verdugo locked up for at least another two years. The earliest he could be a free agent is in 2025. So essentially, we got five years of Alex Verdugo at a very cheap price for Mookie Betts with a potential player in downs and also a catching prospect in Wong. But if you look at it now, the only one that's actually playing very well is Alex Verdugo over the last three years. Although Wong hitting 286 at the Major League level in 11 games isn't bad, but I think if you give him more games, like you give Jaron Duran more games, the average is obviously going to come down. They're not going to be a consistent 280 hitter. Obviously, Duran was hitting 340 for some time and now is hitting 240. But with Alex Verdugo, on the other hand, he's hitting 284 for the Red Sox for the past three seasons with a 756 OPS and a 339 on base percentage. 339 OBP isn't bad. It's a good on base percentage. And then also 284 batting average. Verdugo has not been a problem on this team. The Red Sox have just been really struggling. Very consistent player, though, with his three years in Los Angeles and then three years with the Red Sox. And now I'm going to compare some stats. He had 282 with a 784 OPS and a 335 on base percentage in Los Angeles. Now with the Red Sox, 284 batting average with a 756 OPS and a 339 on base percentage. So 282 versus 284, 784 versus 756, and 335 on base percentage versus a 339 on base percentage with the Red Sox. He's hitting 265 this year, so the average is a little bit down, but has a 676 OPS with six home runs and 50 RBIs, and has been hitting very well as of late. So I think all in all, if you look at that, Dale, if the Red Sox were not to pay Mookie Betts and he didn't want to stay in Boston, then at the end of the day, you got two prospects that could be good plays, and you also got Alex Verdugo as a good major league piece. So at the end of the day, if you look at it from that perspective, let's say if Mookie Betts did not want to come back to Boston, no matter how much you offered him since he was already tuned out. And I think Mookie loves L.A., likes being in the spotlight, so I think he's happy in L.A. It seems like that's where he wanted to be. But the way I look at it is if Mookie Betts said, he told Chris Casper the Boston Globe, he said that he would have taken the same contract, the 12-year, $365 million extension that he got with the L.A. Dodgers before his contract extension was up. He was going to L.A. in the summer of 2020 with just one year left on his deal, and obviously right away they gave him a huge contract extension, 12 years, $365 million, with a lot of it deferred, but still getting $365 million over 12 years. But he told... Chris Gasper of the Boston Globe, that he would have taken that same amount of money from the Red Sox. I think if you look at it from that perspective, 
If Mookie Betts would have taken that same money from the Red Sox, then I think you lose that deal. If Mookie Betts really was being honest about that, he actually would have stayed in Boston if he got 12 years, 365 as an extension, because I know the Red Sox were lowballing him just like they're lowballing Devis and Bogots now, then I think it's a loss. But I think if you look at it from the perspective of Mookie Betts wanted to leave no matter what, the Red Sox were not going anywhere in that 2020 season. So trading him in the 2019-2020 offseason was not a bad move. Trading him, I believe it was in February 2020, was not a bad move. But if he were to come back and say that he would have taken that same amount of money, I think you lose that deal. But if he would have left no matter what, and he wasn't coming back to Boston no matter how much money you gave him, then I think at the end of the day, you took a shot with Wong and Downs, and you got a really good player with Verdugo. So you got one year of Mookie Betts traded with also getting rid of David Price's contract. You got to factor that in too. Price was getting $31 million for another three seasons. So from 2020 to 2022, the Dodgers would be giving him half of the money that the Red Sox owed David Price while the Red Sox were still giving him money over the next few seasons. But if you look at it at the end of the day, the Red Sox just took a stab with two prospects in Downs and Wong and then also got a good major league piece and Verdugo was a very good player and now still have two more years out of him. So you get five years of Alex Verdugo at the end of the day for just one year of Mookie Betts with two prospects in Wong and Downs while also getting rid of some of that David Price contract. So all in all, if Mookie Betts would have stayed in Boston, I think that deal is a loss. But if Mookie Betts wanted to leave, like I think he wanted to, even if Mookie says that, I think he wanted out no matter what, then I think that move's a win. So it really depends on whether or not Mookie Betts would have actually stayed. But if I had to decide right now, I think Mookie Betts is happier in L.A. I don't think he wants to stay in Boston I think if you look at it at the end of the day, you've got a good player in Alex Verdugo while also getting two prospects and Downs and Wong and then also getting rid of that David Price contract. But I think you maybe could have gotten more from him, especially considering how much talent he has, maybe gotten some higher-end prospects. I mean, Dustin May, I would have taken to that deal. I'm not happy, but I know he has his injury issues now over the last year or two, but I think the Red Sox could have gotten more. But if he were to leave at the end of the day, nothing you can do. Moving on now to the Andrew Benintendi trade, who was actually just traded from the Kansas City Royals to the New York Yankees. I'll get into that at the end of the episode when I'm talking about MOB headlines. But in February of 2021, the Red Sox traded Andrew Benintendi to the Kansas City Royals for Frangie Cordero and two minor leaguers, Josh Winkowski and Freddie Valdez. Benintendi was a first-time All-Star this season with Kansas City. Now a New York Yankee, which I will get into as I said shortly. But Benintendi has been tearing it up this year for Kansas City, now going to the Yankees, but tore it up for Kansas City, hitting 321, which is a career best, a 788 OPS with a 389 on base percentage and three home runs in the 2022 season. In 2021, he had 17 home runs, which was the second best total of his career, with 73 RBIs, a 276 batting average, and a 766 OPS. I think the Red Sox gave up on him way too early. I think without Alex Cora, he was struggling that 2020 season was just not getting a groove at all. Obviously, 2020 was tough since there was no real spring training after the COVID pandemic paused spring training and delayed the season. No hitters really, for the most part, found their groove. You look at it, Christian Yelich was struggling. Andrew Benatendi was struggling. Mookie Betts struggled for some time. Some of the biggest names in baseball were struggling in that 2020 season. So I think the Red Sox just pulled the trigger way too fast on Andrew Benatendi and cut the cord too quick. You look at what we got in return. Franchi Cordero, who has been abysmal for the Red Sox, heading into last night, was hitting 208 for the Red Sox over 116 games in the last two years, 
with 125 strikeouts to 31 walks. Absolutely awful. Five home runs and 33 RBIs in 116 games. He was supposed to be a power hitter, but he's brutal to watch. He's not even showing you power. Five home runs in two seasons over 116 games. He's not a power hitter. You can't consider him a power hitter if he has five home runs in two seasons. He committed three errors a couple nights ago in the same game on Wednesday night. That was eight errors on the season at first base with a 97.2% fielding percentage. He has eight errors in 299 innings played in 42 games heading into last night, which is awful. Eight errors in 299 innings at first base in 42 games. That's awful. And the Red Sox actually have the ninth most errors in all of baseball heading into last night's game. They had 60 errors on the season, which was ninth most in the major leagues. Cordero, as for what he's been doing at the plate, not hitting well, as I said, 208 over two seasons, but this year is hitting 220 with four home runs and a 31.8% strikeout percentage. And per Alex Spear of the Boston Globe, Cordero is the first Red Sox first baseman to have three errors in a single game since Mo Vaughn did it in 1993. It's just painful to watch him play first base, and it's not his issue at the end of the day. It's not his fault. I would say that. Dahlbeck is not a first baseman. Cordero is not a first baseman. Jaron Duran is not a center fielder. He should be a right fielder at best. And Christian Arroyo is not a right fielder. If you can't see from watching the Red Sox for the last two weeks now, two to three weeks, that those four guys do not belong in the positions they've been playing in, then I don't know what to tell you at the end of the day because none of those four guys should be playing where they've been playing. And I think at the end of the day, it's not an Alex Cora for where they've been playing. It is Hyam Bloom not having a true first baseman on the roster. Cordero has the second most errors among all first basemen in baseball with eight errors at first base. Josh Bell has nine, but has played 556 more innings this season than Cordero at first base. Cordero currently has the second most in all of baseball with eight, but in the top five among errors committed by first basemen, four or five of them have played 779 innings. Cordero's the only one that hasn't played that. He's only played 299 innings at first base and has played 480 less innings than any of those guys in the top five. So he's second in baseball playing 480 innings less than every single one of those guys in the top five. So if you can't see that he's not a first baseman, I don't know what to tell you. And I don't know what Hyam Bloom can't see either. Josh Winkowski, the other part of that deal, has a 5.1 ERA this season, 5.18 with a 3-5 and record on the mound, a 1.5 whip, 27 strikeouts to 15 walks, 23 earned runs allowed, and 45 hits allowed and 40 innings pitched. The rookie has struggled this year heavily. And then you look at the other prospect we got, Freddy Valdez, who is playing in the Florida Complex League for the Red Sox over the last two years, has played 48 games with only one home run in those 48 games, hit 229 last year and 211 this year. He's not been playing well at all. So if you look at what we got in return, Cordero was not a great piece in return. Winkowski was not either, and neither was Valdez, it seems like. So I think this is a field trade by a mile, especially considering Andrew Benatendi has a career-best 321 batting average this year with a 788 OPS and a 389 on base percentage. Also, at 17 home runs last year, and if you look at now he's a Yankee, it's just a complete loss. So, Winkowski has not been playing well, Cordero's not been playing well, and then Valdez, don't know much about him, but he, since he's only in the Florida Complex League still after being traded for now, almost a year and a half ago now, that's obviously not a good deal in return. So, the Red Sox completely lost this trade, it's not even a question. The next trade I'm going to talk about is in July of 2021. The Red Sox traded Michael Chavis to the Pittsburgh Pirates for Austin Davis, a relief pitcher at the MLB trade deadline in July of 2021. Chavis could honestly be the first baseman right now. You take his 236 batting average heading into last night with 10 home runs and 32 RBIs over Cordero and Dahlbeck all day. 
Chavis has one error in 448 innings played this year at first base. 448 and two-thirds innings played with only one error and a 99.8% fielding percentage in 63 games. Dahlbeck hitting 200. He's not a first baseman with 23 RBIs and a 32.5% strikeout rate. Dahlbeck is actually eighth worst in all of baseball with a 32.5% strikeout rate among hitters with a minimum of 250 plate appearances. So he's been struggling this year, obviously. And then Cordero has been awful at first base offensively and defensively. He's hitting 220 this season with four home runs, a 31.8% strikeout rate, just like Dahlbeck. Both of them strike out around 32% of the time of every single one of their plate appearances. So that's awful. And then Cordero, eight errors and 299 innings played at first base. And only 24 RBIs, so he's not helping you offensively or defensively. Chavis is a better fielder, a better hitter, and gives it his all on a nightly basis. And even though he might strike out, you take his 10 home runs all day. And even though Dahlbeck had a good game two nights ago now, two home runs in the same game, was one of the Red Sox' hottest hitters in that game, one of their only good hitters in that game. They're still losing to the Guardians. But Chavis won error in 448 and two-thirds innings played at first base this year. You take him all day over Dahlbeck and Cordero. So that trade is a loss. It's not even a question, in my opinion. Before I even talk about Davis, it's a loss. Davis allowed three home runs and five runs scored in one and one-thirds innings pitched in the infamous 28-5 Red Sox game last Friday night versus Toronto. In 2021, after the trade deadline, he had a 4.86 ERA and 19 appearances for the Red Sox in 2021 with 17 strikeouts to seven walks, nine earned runs and 16 two-thirds innings pitched, and a 1.5 whip. In 2022, for the Sox, he has a 4.5 ERA in 37 games with 20 earned runs and 40 innings pitched and a 1.425 whip. 1.425 whip compared to his 1.5 whip last year. He's just been awful. All in all, this has just been a loss for the Red Sox in every single realm. I think Chavis could have still been your first baseman. You would have taken his 10 home runs and 236 batting average over Dahlbeck and Cordero any day, especially considering he's a much better first baseman with only one error in 448 and two-thirds innings played compared to Cordero's eight errors and 299 innings played heading into last night. That's a loss, and Hyam Bloom should be down about that trade still. That was a horrible move by him. Then in December of 2021, the next move was High and Bloom trading Hunter Renfro to the Milwaukee Brewers in a surprise move for Jackie Bradley Jr. and two prospects, Alex Benellis and David Hamilton. The Brewers became Renfro's fourth team in four seasons. He had 31 home runs for the Red Sox in 2021 with a career-best 259 batting average, 96 RBIs, which was also career-best. Previous closest to that 96 RBIs in 2021 was 68 back in 2018 with San Diego, so he completely shattered that. And then also an 816 OPS, which was also another career best. So he just hit a 17th home run a couple nights ago now. The same night Mookie Betts hit his 23rd home run. Benintendi raised his average that same night, two nights ago now, to 323. And Chavis at that point had 10 home runs. So just to run over all my trades I was going to talk about and I've already went through with the Red Sox. I'm not sure about that Mookie trade still because who knows if he would have stayed. But the Benintendi trade and Chavis trade. Both of those were losses. I think you still could have gotten more from Mookie Betts. But what you got for Hunter Renfro, Renfro now this season hitting 17 home runs with 39 RBIs, a 252 batting average, and an 823 OPS in 2022. Then you consider how much better he is defensively than Jaron Duran and also Christian Arroyo in right field or center field. 
I think the Red Sox lost this move easily as well. I do love Jackie Bradley Jr., but heading into last night, he only had three home runs with a 211 batting average and a 577 OPS with 28 RBIs, 55 strikeouts, and 17 walks. He was a 2016 All-Star with the Red Sox, 2018 World Series champion, and a 2018 center field gold glove with the Sox. So I know obviously he's a fan favorite around here. I love him, but he's struggling this year, and just I think it's a bad move at the end of the day, giving up Renfro for him. He hit 283 in the shortened 2020 season because of COVID. But besides that, he has not gone close to that at all within the last few seasons. I think that's a real loss for the Red Sox in that trade as well. So I get the Red Sox losing the Renfro trade, the Benintendi trade, definitely the Chavis trade as well, and then the Mookie Betts trade as well because I think they could have gotten more. So that's four big trades right there the Red Sox made. that I think they lost every single one of them. And then if you look at what the Red Sox did this offseason, they let Kyle Schwarber walk. And even though that's not a trade, I think they lost that as well. Schwarber signed a four-year, $79 million deal with the Philadelphia Phillies in the offseason. He had 291 with seven home runs and 41 games for the Sox in 2021 with the 23.2% strikeout rate for the Sox at 41 games, which was actually career best for him. His strikeout rate was lowest with the Red Sox in 2021 than any point in his career. He had one error for the Sox at 10 games at first base with a 98.5% fielding percentage. So you would have got better offensive production by far than Cordero and Dahlbeck together. And then also would have gotten more help defensively, even though he did have one error in those 10 games played at first base. I think he's a better first baseman than Cordero. And then Dahlbeck, I mean, I'm not really sure who's better there. But at the end of the day, you take Schwarber's offense, no matter how bad his defense was, let's say, all day just to put him in the lineup. So I think the Red Sox lost that move by letting Schwarber walk, especially considering heading into Wednesday night's game, so two nights ago now, Schwarber had 60 RBIs, which was 13 more than Dahlbeck and Cordero combined. Those two players combined only had 47 with 12 home runs between the two of those guys compared to Schwarber's 60 RBIs and 31 home runs. So 19 more home runs and 13 more RBIs that both of those guys put together. Schwarber on the year now has 32 home runs, second most in the major leagues, first in the NL. He is hitting 204 at the 30.8% strikeout rate heading into last night, which is sixth worst among qualified hitters, but you would take his 32 home runs all day just because he's helping your middle of the lineup so much with all that power. So I'm going to give the Red Sox a loss on that move, too. So their five biggest moves, the Mookie Betts trade, the Benintendi trade, the Chavis trade, the Renfro trade, and then also letting Kyle Schrober walk five huge moves to the Red Sox over the last year. I think the Red Sox lost every single one of them, except maybe the Mookie Betts one, depending on circumstances. But I think they could have got more from him, so I'm going to give them a loss just for that. You could have gotten better prospects than Downs and Wong probably, even though I like Downs a lot, I think you could have got better prospects than those two guys. I do love Verdugo, so I'm going to consider it at least a tad bit of a win since you get five years of Verdugo at a very cheap price. But those are five big moves the Red Sox lost. And if you look at it, what we get in return is always prospects. And per Alex Spear of the Boston Globe, High and Bloom has acquired 21 minor leagues and 12 deals since becoming the Red Sox chief baseball officer in 2019. So expect him to get a ton of prospects in the next upcoming moves over the next week. But at the end of the day, I think this Red Sox team is in trouble. And if they're just going to be trading for prospects, I think the end of this season's a wrap anyways. I don't think they have really much of a chance with the guys they have now anyways. But you start trading your major league pieces for future prospects in the next year or two. I think that's a concession on its own. I think it's a clear loss for the rest of this season if you start trading your major league pieces. And even though I think that's what they kind of have to do, since I don't think this team can win, I think if you start trading pieces like J.D. Martinez and Nate Evaldi and Rich Hill... 
I think it shows this team's not going anywhere. I think Hyam Bloom would know that too if he were to be moving those guys. So now I'm going to move on to headlines across the MLB. Giancarlo Stanton of the New York Yankees was just placed in the IL with an Achilles injury and will miss the next two to three weeks. This is the second time he's been missing games this season. He had a calf injury in May, but has stayed mostly healthy this year, a lot more than he has passed as well over the last couple of years now. The Yankees are reportedly interested in Frankie Montas of the Oakland A's, a very good pitcher, and then also Luis Castillo, a great pitcher of the Cincinnati Reds. And they also just got Andrew Benintendi, which I'm going to break down in a few minutes. I think the Yankees could use another bullpen piece, like a Daniel Bod, since Michael King's out for the year with a fraction of his elbow. King, luckily, according to reports, he should be good to go for 2023 and maybe even spring training. He avoided Tommy John surgery, according to reports, which is great. So that's good news for him. But I think the Yankees could end up using another bullpen piece like a Daniel Bod since Michael King is out for the year. And then also getting Andrew Benintendi is a huge piece of them since I think he'll be starting for them in right field for the rest of the season realistically and is a much better player than Joey Gallo out there, especially hitting-wise. Gallo's just been atrocious. I think he's going to not be a New York Yankee within the next few days. I think they'll be moving on from him very soon. So for the Yankees' approach to the trade deadline, I think they need another bullpen piece, as I said, and then maybe one more pitcher in the rotation, like a Montas or Castillo, just to have them, since you can never have too much talent, especially for a team that's trying to go win it right now. So now I'm going to talk about some players on the trade block. Josh Bell, first baseman of the Washington Nationals. Zach Plesak, a pitcher of the Cleveland Guardians. Wilson Contreras, longtime Cubs catcher. Juan Soto, superstar of the Nationals. David Robinson, Cubs close, having a very good year. Trey Mancini, first baseman slash outfielder for the Baltimore Orioles, actually hit an inside-the-park home run in what could be his final at-bat as a Baltimore Oriole in Baltimore. I think the Cubs could also trade Kyle Hendricks and maybe even outfielder Ian Happ as well. So there's a lot of guys on the move that could potentially be on the move. And if you look at it, the Diamondbacks could be another team that's going to sell heavy. They got Christian Walker, first baseman. Joe Mantiply, a relief pitcher, was a 2022 All-Star. 38 strikeouts with two walks and 38 innings pitched this year. Out of the bullpen with a 2.37 ERA. I think those guys are a lot of guys to keep your eyes on over the next few days before the trade deadline, which, as I said, will be on August 2nd. I'm sure it's going to be very active. A lot of teams make moves to try to go make a run at the trade deadline. So things should get interesting, especially considering Juan Soto could potentially be moved. And as I said... The Nationals are going to give him one more offer at a contract extension, and then if he denies that, he will be moved, according to reports today. And then also, Shohei Otani, supposedly the LA Angels will be listening to offers on, but I think at the end of the day, I think it's too much, and league executives across the MLB are saying it's minimal to none chances that they were to trade him, and it would cost at least your top four prospects and more. So I do not think the Angels would trade him at the end of the day, but I guess since he is on the trade block... There is a chance they were to trade him, but I think it's going to cost too much with it being four prospects, and he only has one year left on his deal after this one. So I don't think anyone's going to give up their top four prospects and probably another few pieces to try to get him. Although his talent level is unreal, you'd still have to sign him to an extension, and who knows if he's going to want to stay wherever he's traded. So next up is David Ortiz. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame this past weekend in Cooperstown. He got 77.9% of the vote to get in. He's actually the only player in this year's seven-man class to be a player. He was the first DH ever to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Ten-time All-Star, three-time World Series champion, World Series MVP in 2013. Hit 688 with two home runs and a 1.948 OPS in six games in the 2013 World Series. He's a seven-time Silver Slugger and also Home Run Derby champ in 2010. He had 30-plus home runs in each of his last four seasons, hitting 38 home runs and 315 batting average at 40 years old in his final season in 2016. And that season was honestly one of his best in his whole career. 
He was unreal that year, finishing sixth in the MVP vote, was a league leader in doubles with 48, second in RBIs with 127, Nolan Arenado had 133 that year. He was a league leader in slugging percentage with a 620 slugging percentage, and was also a league leader in OPS with a 1021 OPS. So such a tremendous season there for David Ortiz at the end of his career. He led the MLB in 2015 and 2016 in intentional walks with 16 in 2015 and then 15 in 2016. People still fear David Ortiz at 39 and 40 years old, and that just shows how great a player he still was when he retired. He still could have been doing it probably for another few years. He finished top five in MVP voting in five straight years from 2003 to 2007. In his 14 seasons with the Red Sox, he had 483 home runs with a 290 batting average, 1,530 RBIs, a 956 OPS, and in his whole 20-year career in total, so including the six years in Minnesota, he had 541 home runs, which is 17th most in MLB history, 1,768 RBIs, which is 23rd in MLB history, a 286 batting average, and a 930 OPS. And his Hall of Fame speech was great. He credited his teammates and old coaches, and it was a nice touch for him to have Wakefield and Veritek and John Farrell and Terry Francona all there for him at Fenway a few nights ago when he came after the Hall of Fame induction. Vladimir Guerrero was there also as well. So he did very well in his speech, very heartfelt speech, and he honestly credited a lot to Boston and the teammates he had and the coaches he had. So I thought it was a great speech, and it really was heartwarming, especially considering how much of a leader he was for the whole city of Boston. I mean, everyone saw him as a leader and someone to look up to and a role model, and he did a great speech. And congratulations to David on a great career, and thank you for everything and all the memories. Next up, Mike Trout's injury. He just received a cortisone shot in his back. Probably has this back injury from carrying the Angels franchise for the past 12 seasons. According to his doctors, it's a condition that is known as a costovertebral dysfunction at T5. Despite reports saying he's going to have to play with it for the rest of his career and battle with it, Mike Trout said it was all an over-exaggeration the whole situation was, and he expects to still play this season. He has not played since July 12th, and hopefully he's back soon. The Angels have been struggling without him in the lineup, even with him, but they just had their first two-game win streak since June 26th and June 27th. They won July 26th and July 27th, so just one month exactly that they did not have a two-game win streak, and their fall-off has just been hard to watch, and now with Mike Trout's injury, it only becomes worse. So now I'm going to move on to the Subway Series. The Yankees fell to the New York Mets in both games at City Field. The Mets won game one 6-3, but two nights ago now they had a thrilling walk-off win with a Stalin Mate single to score Eduardo Escobar in the bottom of the ninth inning. Max Scherz was dominant in that game. It was actually his birthday, and he had a great performance on the mound. Seven innings pitched, allowing five hits and no runs, while striking out six batters and walking two. The Mets are currently 14-8 in July, heading to last night, scoring 90 runs and allowing 61 with a plus-29 run differential and a 7-3 in their last 10 games, heading to last night. The Mets now face the Miami Marlins in Miami for a three-game series. The Mets actually just traded for Reds outfielder Tyler Naquin and left-handed reliever Philip Deal from the Cincinnati Reds in exchange for two minor league prospects of the New York Mets. Naquin on the season has seven home runs with a .246 batting average, 33 runs batted in, and a .749 OPS. So the Mets get in return for two minor league prospects, get Tyler Naquin outfield depth, and then also a bullpen piece as well to help their back end of the bullpen. So not a bad move there for the Mets, and they played very well against the Yankees winning both of those games. The Yankees, so speaking of them, have traded three minor league pitches for Kansas City Royals outfield and former Red Sox star Andrew Benintendi. He led off for them last night against his former team, actually, Kansas City Royals. Crazy how we could be traded from the Royals to the Yankees and then play his former team right away. He went 0-4 as 
a Yankee in his debut with a strikeout in his first at-bat. I do love this move for the Yankees, though. They only gave up their 19th and 21st prospects and a prospect outside of their top 30. I really love this move by the Yankees. Brian Cashman should be proud of this move, only giving up the 19th and 21st prospects in their farm system and then someone else outside of their top 30. That's a great piece, especially considering you now have an outfield outfield piece that's better than what you had out of Joey Gallo. Joey Gallo's just been painful to watch. I think he'll be gone very soon. The Yankees, though, have been struggling, and Benintendi's coming in at a good time for them. The Yankees are 10-12 and 12 in July, heading into last night. 2-5 and five since the All-Star break, with 28 runs scored to 31 runs allowed. A minus-3 run differential on 5-10 and 10 in their last 25 games. The Yankees are 8-12 and 12 over their last 20. Benintendi will be a great piece of them in that lineup, though, hitting 320 on the year with 104 hits. And a 387 on base percentage. He's actually first in batting average in hits among all outfielders and third in on base percentage among outfielders. So I think he's a great addition to that Yankees lineup. And I think it makes them a lot more dangerous. And I think it helps them compete with that Houston Astros team, where I think is a favorite right now in the American League. If I had a bet right now, I think the Astros come out of the American League. I think they have a very good chance of winning the World Series. I think that'd be my pick right now. I think it'd be Astros, Dodgers. But with addition of Benintendi, I mean, their lineup for the Yankees gets better and, and, and is only stronger. So it's a great move for them. So now I'm going to talk about the AL East and update you guys on how all five teams have been doing. I've already talked about the Red Sox and Yankees. Heading into last night, the Orioles had the third best record in the major leagues over the last 20 games, 15-5 and five with the fourth best record over the last 30. They're, they were 20-10 and 10 over the last 30 heading into last night. The Orioles are currently 50-49, and 49, while the Red Sox are 50-50. and 50, So the Red Sox are dead last in the AL East by half a game. They fell out of 500 for the first time since June 4th, as I said. The Sox are 11 and 19 over their last 30 games, tied for the third worst record of baseball over that stretch. The Angels are 9 and 21, and the Nats are 10 and 20, the only two teams with the worst record over that stretch. The Sox are 5 and 15 in their last 20, tied with the Nationals and Angels for the worst record over that stretch. 2 and 8 in their last 10, which is tied with the Pirates and Rangers for worst over that stretch as well. So the Red Sox have been struggling, especially considering this is the time when you have to either turn it up or turn it off and either sell or buy the deadline. I think the Red Sox will be sellers. As for the Blue Jays, they are tied right now with the Dodgers for the best record in baseball over the last 10 games. They are 8 and 2, and they're actually 8 and 2 since firing manager Charlie Montoyo. So clearly, bench coach John Schneider has been doing great for them as the interim coach and has maximized their potential and stopped the bleeding. And I think it's the reverse of what happened with the Angels. With the Blue Jays, the Blue Jays had a 1 and 9 stretch before firing Montoyo. And similar to Joe Madden, they were on a, in the midst of a 10 game losing streak, and the Angels ended up pulling the plug and firing them. And. Then Phil Nevin was worse. I think it's the opposite here, though, where the Angels firing Madden led to Phil Nevin being worse. It's the opposite, though. With the Blue Jays firing Montoyo, they've been better off since with John Schneider. So it's the opposite of what happened in Toronto versus Anaheim. The Blue Jays are 5-1 since the All-Star break with 56 runs scored and 22 runs allowed with a plus 34 run differential. The Orioles are 26-14 and 14 since June 11th, which is actually the best in the MLB over that stretch, best record in baseball since June 11th. The Yankees are 25-17. and 17. Blue Jays are 22-20. The Red Sox are 19-22. And, and the Rays are 19-22. So that's what the AL East is since June 11th. The Orioles are 26-14. and 14. The Yankees are 25-17. and 17. Blue Jays 22-20. And, and then the Rays and Sox are both 19-22. As for the Rays, they will be without Kevin Kamaya, their star outfielder, defensively is a star for the remainder of the season with a hip injury. He just got labrum surgery and will miss the remainder of the season. So it's a big loss for them. 
So now I'm going to talk about some other teams in the major leagues, including the Washington Nationals, who actually have the worst record in the MLB, but they actually took two out of three games from the Los Angeles Dodgers, who had the best record in the major leagues. The A's have the second worst record in baseball and took three of three against the Astros, who actually have the third best record in the major leagues. So the two worst teams in baseball taking two out of three and three out of three versus the first best team in baseball and the third best team in baseball. Very impressive. As for the Oakland A's, they are tied right now for the second best record in the major leagues over the last 10 games. They are 7-3. and three. They have the fourth best record in baseball over the last 20. They are 12-8 and 15-15 and 15 and 15 over the last 30. They are 6-2 and two since the All-Star break and actually, as I said, just swept the Houston Astros in a three-game series in Oakland. The A's are now 6-6 six and six versus Houston on the year and they actually are 6-3 and three versus the Astros in July and still meet them another six times. So it seems like the Oakland A's could be the Houston Astros kryptonite. While I'm talking about the A's, I'm going to talk about some of the guys they could potentially trade. They will be sellers of the trade deadline. It could move stud starter right-handed pitcher Frankie Montas. Could be a Yankee, as I said. The Yankees could definitely use him. He is 4-9 on the year with a 3-1-8 ERA, 109 strikeouts with 28 walks, and a 3.89 strikeout-to-walk ratio in 19 starts. Still has one more year left to control. He's a free agent in 2024, so that could definitely help a team trade him. They could want him and give up a little more since they could get an extra year out of him. They could also trade Tony Kemp, their second baseman. He has one year of control left on his contract. He's a free agent in 2024. Struggling on the year batting average-wise, hitting 216 with four home runs, six stolen bases, and a 596 OPS. But you look at what he did last year. He had 279 with an 800 OPS. Has been with Oakland for three years after four years in Houston and one year with the Cubs. I think he could be a valuable piece off the bench for a World Series team or a contender, especially considering if you could just get him back to hitting 280 like he did last year. Jed Lowry, middle infielder for the A's, and his third stint in Oakland. Battling a shoulder injury right now since the end of June, but has resumed batting practice. I think he could be a guy's potentially on the move. Lowry is a free agent at the end of this season. He signed a one-year $850,000 contract with the A's in the offseason. That's a steal for a player who gives it his all when healthy. He actually was a former Red Sox. I actually met him. I was a huge fan of him, and I got to meet him and get a picture with him. I was probably 10 years old. I was psyched. He was a really nice guy as well. Signed an autograph and got a picture. So I've always been a big fan of Lowry. I think he deserves to be on a contending team. From 2008 to 2011, he had 19 home runs with a 252 batting average and a 732 OPS for the Red Sox. He's hitting only 185 this year with three home runs, but was an all-star in 2018 in his second stint in Oakland and also hit 23 home runs that year. If he follows the trend he's been on, he will end up a New York Met and then go back to Oakland uh, since in 2012 he was on the Astros. Went from the Astros in 2012 to Oakland for 2013 to 2014, then went back to Houston for 2015, and then went back to Oakland from 2016 to 2018, then went to the Mets for a season in 2019, took 2020 off, and then went back to the A's in 2021 and 2022. So he went from Houston to Oakland to Houston to Oakland to the Mets to Oakland, and now potentially going back to either the Mets or the Astros and then just repeating the cycle since it's a pattern. But... While I'm on the topic of the Oakland Athletics, I want to talk about some issues I have with them in their stadium. I was actually just doing some research about it. Their stadium, the Oakland Coliseum, holds over 56,000 people, and they actually have an average of 8,456 fans per home game this year, according to the MLB attendance report on ESPN. Second to last is Miami at 11,000 fans per game this year. Last year was the same bottom two. Miami was dead last last year in fans per game, and then... The Oakland A's had 8,000 per game again in 2021, which was 29th, so second to last. In 2019, Oakland was 20th, though, in attendance with 20,500 fans per game. But in 2018, they were 27th. 
with 19,400 fans per game. They were 29th in 2017 with 18,000 fans per game on average. And now this year being at 8,000, that's just pathetic. They're also dead last. So they weren't having many fans before. It was only a third of the stadium. 19,000 fans is only one-third of what the Oakland Coliseum holds just about. But I think if what you look at it, what I'm upset about is how it's gone down fans-wise. I mean, they're falling from 20th in 2019 to now dead last in 2022. They were second to last in 2021. And if you look at the amount of fans have, that have gone per game, it went down from 2017 and on. It was 18,000 2017, 19,000 2018, 20,500 in 2019, then in 2021, 8,000 and 8,000 in 2022. And only 8,000 fans out of stadium that holds 56,000. That's only one-seventh of the stadium is taken up. That's just ridiculous. And I think the A's and I think the MLB have to consider changing something and maybe moving the team since you can't have 7,000, 8,000 fans in a Major League Baseball game. You have to find a way to mix things up, and I think you have to find a way to try to increase attendance for them. And whether that's moving the stadium, moving to a new city, getting a new stadium, doing something to change things up, doing more promotions, trying to get people to games, maybe even playing better baseball like they have been, maybe doing that for a whole season, they have to try everything they can to try to get more fans in the game. 8,000 fans is just pathetic. they got to figure something out there. So now I'm going to transition to Wimbledon. I'm going to talk about that for a second before I talk about the NFL. A few weeks ago, which I've been meaning to talk about this, just like I've been meaning to talk about the NHL draft and just never got to it. So to start off, Novak Djokovic won his 21st major title a few weeks ago at Wimbledon while also earning $2.5 million, which actually brought his career on-court earnings to $159 million. Only Rafael Nadal has more major single titles with 22 Nadal actually had to withdraw from Wimbledon before a semifinals matchup with Nick Kyrgios due to an abdominal tear. Djokovic ended up going on to win his seventh Wimbledon title, fourth straight one. Only Roger Federer has more titles with eight at Wimbledon. And you can just see from those statistics that the big three has been so dominant. Federer having eight titles at Wimbledon. Djokovic winning his seventh Wimbledon title, fourth straight. Nadal having 22 major single titles. And Djokovic having 21. It's just clear how much dominance that big three has had in recent memory. And when you think tennis, you think of those three guys, Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer. And when facing other big three opponents, one thing I just came across was that Nadal has the most Grand Slam titles with 15, while Djokovic has 14 and Federer has 7. So obviously Nadal has the edge with one more than Djokovic. And then Federer has 7 less than Djokovic and 8 less than Nadal. This was Djokovic's 32nd Grand Slam final. And then you look at the other side. This was Nick Kyrgios' first Grand Slam final. So the difference experience-wise definitely played a role in how it went. Kyrgios did start out hot, though, and actually won the first set. But after that, Djokovic just took over with his experience. It was just too much for him to handle. But still an accomplishment just making it, especially considering it was his first Grand Slam final, just making it a win on its own. And you're playing a legend in Djokovic. It's never going to be easy to beat him, especially considering he's won four straight Wimbledon titles, won his seventh one, won his 21st major, won a Dallas 22. I mean, if you face any of those guys, Nadal, Djokovic, Federer, at the end of the day, just being able to play them is an honor. So Kyrgios ends up coming up short, but start out hot. So it's something to build off of for him, winning the first set. That's a big way to get things going. Obviously, you need to win more than one. You have to win three, but winning one, against a legend like Nadal or Djokovic or Federer at the end of the day is honestly a win in its own. So now I'm going to transition to the NFL and talk about news across the league. 
The Arizona Cardinals quarterback, Kyler Murray, just got a huge extension to stay with the team for an extra five years. He got a five-year, $230.5 million contract extension with $103.3 million guaranteed at the signing and $150 million guaranteed in total. With the Arizona Cardinals, $230.5 million is $500,000 more than what Deshaun Watson's contract extension was with the Cleveland Browns. Now Kyler Murray, being $500,000 ahead of Deshaun Watson, becomes the third highest in contract total value behind Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen and actually becomes now the second in highest annual average at $46.1 million per year just behind Aaron Rodgers. He had $29 million as a signing bonus which will be distributed over about about five years I believe at about $6 million per year on the cap extra per season so $6 more million extra per season on the cap as a signing bonus. The former first overall selection 2019 had two seasons left under his rookie contract with this being his fourth year and then they picked up his fifth year option so with the extra five year extension being added on his contract now is seven years, $265.7 million. He would now be making $46.1 million per year. Now, if you look at it, what he would have been making as a Major League Baseball player would not be even close to that. He's making $46.1 million per year, while if you look at it, the Oakland A's 2022 payroll is only $48.5 million. So he's making just $2 million less than what the Oakland A's entire roster is making as a 2022 payroll. Like, that's ridiculous. And he was the ninth overall selection in the 2018 MLB draft before staying in college for one more year to play football. Ends up being the Heisman Trophy winner that season and becomes the first overall pick in 2019. So he made the right decision by playing with football, still made his money, and still got his contract extension, got a ton of money at the end of the day. So it's a win for him. He's coming off a season where he played 14 games, missed three games, threw for 3,787 passing yards with 24 touchdowns and 10 interceptions. Also was a pro bowler in each of the last two seasons and was also the rookie of the year in 2019, even though I thought Daniel Jones should have been the offensive rookie of the year over him. He had 20 passing touchdowns with 12 interceptions and 16 games as a rookie. Then you look at Daniel Jones in only 12 games, so four less games, had 24 touchdowns with 12 picks, had four more touchdowns passing than Kyler Murray as a rookie in four less games. Daniel Jones should have been the 2019 rookie of the year, but at the end of the day, that's in the past. Kyler Murray coming off 24 touchdowns, 10 interceptions, as I said. And then you look at what he's been doing on the ground. Coming off a season where he rushed for five touchdowns and 423 yards. On the ground in 2020, though, he rushed for 819 yards in 16 games with 11 touchdowns on the ground for a combined 11 touchdowns rushing and 26 passing. So 37 touchdowns in 2020. That's a good year for him. And his success over the last few years ends up being the reason he gets that big contract especially considering he was 9-5 and five in the field this past year. And without him on the field, the Cardinals did struggle. I know Colt McCoy didn't have a bad year for them as a backup coming in. He played well for the Giants two years ago in 2020 when Daniel Jones was hurt. He played all right with the Cardinals in 2021 when Kyler Murray was hurt. But Murray's got too much money to miss three games. Uh, he did play the full 16 games his first two years and then played 14 out of 17 this past year. So hopefully he can stay healthy this year. And as I said, he's making more money now than he would have in baseball at all. As the Oakland A's payroll is only $48.5 million, he wouldn't be making close to that if he was still in Oakland A. So money-wise, it works out for him. One thing I did have an issue with was the independent study clause within his contract. The Cardinals and Murray have been getting a lot of backlash over the last few days over a clause in his contract that actually required him to have four hours of independent study every single week away from the TV and video games and friends, etc. What I see from that, though, that means he didn't do enough homework in the past and that the Cardinals thought he was doing the bare minimum and 
end, at the end of the day, want to require him to study and actually take things serious and take film serious. So I don't think that's a great thing for Kyla. At the end of the day, if he needed to have in part of his contract, he needed a clause that said you need to do your homework and study. That's not a good thing, in my opinion. He should want to do the studying on his own. It shouldn't need extra money or an extra clause in his contract to want to do that and try to win. So I don't know how to feel about it, besides that I feel like maybe he wasn't doing enough homework before. So now I'm going to transition to some retirements across the NFL. Danny Amendola, former Patriots wide receiver, was 17th among active players with 617 receptions, just retired a few days ago, finishing 200th all-time in receiving yards with 6,212 receiving yards. He was 31st among active players in receiving yards, had 24 catches for 248 yards and three touchdowns in eight games this past year for the Houston Texans. His fifth team, actually, in his career was the Houston Texans. 617 catches, 6,212 receiving yards, and 24 touchdowns in his 13-year career. He won two Super Bowls in New England while playing five years with the Patriots. He had 12 touchdowns, 2,383 receiving yards and 230 receptions. Had six career playoff touchdowns with the Patriots. Had three touchdowns and 137 yards in three playoff games in 2014. And then also had a touchdown catch in both Super Bowls he was in with the Patriots, both of them that they won. He had a touchdown catch in both of them in 2015 and 2017. Had five catches of 48 yards and a touchdown in 2015 versus Seattle. And then eight catches, 78 yards, and a touchdown in 2017 versus Atlanta. Came up big in the big moments for the Patriots team. Ends up retiring a few days ago, as I said. K.J. Wright, former Seahawks linebacker, played 10 years in Seattle and won with Oakland. A one-time Pro Bowl and a Super Bowl champ with the Seahawks. Was a tackling machine for Seattle over the years. Had 941 combined tackles. To go along with 13 and a half sacks and 144 games played, six interceptions, nine fumble recoveries, and 66 tackles for a loss. He had 992 tackles in his 11 year career, which is actually 87th all time and sixth among active players, 35th among active players with 68 tackles for a loss. He had 11 tackles, 10 solo, and one assisted in the 2015 Super Bowl versus the Patriots. And then in the 2014 Super Bowl, the Seahawks actually won over the Broncos 43-8. He had five solo tackles, two assisted tackles, and seven combined tackles in that Super Bowl. So he came up big in the big moments for them. And 992 tackles over his career is 87th all-time. So one of the best tacklers, top 100 tackles in NFL history tackles-wise. So congratulations to K.J. Wright in a great career. Same thing with Amendola. Next up, Chris Constant, Seahawks running back, retired a few days ago due to a lingering neck injury that plagued him for a lot of last season. He only played four games in 2021. The Seahawks actually released him so he could still get his millions of dollars in benefits and insurance due to the injury. He spent five years with the Seattle Seahawks after being a 2017 seventh-round pick, 249th overall in 2017. From 2018 to 2020, he was exceptional in those three seasons with nine total touchdowns in each of those three seasons in 2018, 2019, 2020. Three straight years and nine touchdowns is unreal. He was really a great player, especially when healthy. He was a great safety blanket for Russell Wilson. From 2018 to 2020, which was the prime part of his career right before he got hurt in 2021, he had 3,062 rushing yards, 21 rushing touchdowns, 94 catches for 716 receiving yards, and six receiving touchdowns over that three-year stretch with 3,778 yards from scrimmage and 27 touchdowns. In 2021, he only played four games due to the neck injury, but did have three touchdowns in those four games played. Very productive player, and I'm wishing him the best in retirement. I always draft him in fantasy since I always liked the way he played. I always played the game very hard and very strong. Had 28 broken tackles in 2019, which was tied for sixth in the NFL. Two players at 32, three players at 29, and then Kassin was third on that list with 28. So technically tied for sixth, but third broken tackles-wise at 28. 
Played the game very strong, very hot, and always gave it his all, and I was a big fan of that. It looks like he'll end up getting $4.2 million split over the next three seasons as an insurance due to the injury. So still got some money at the end of the day, but I'm wishing him nothing but the best in retirement. And just today, two more NFL players retired. Ryan Kerrigan, former Washington 2011 first-round pick. The linebacker had a great career with 10 years in Washington, one year with the Eagles in Philadelphia, was dominant from 2014 to 2018. In those five seasons, he racked up 60 sacks, an interception that he returned for a touchdown, two fumble recoveries, 15 forced fumbles, 228 total tackles, and 92 quarterback hits. He had double-digit sacks in four of those five seasons, which is very impressive. And then I think even more impressive is that he played all 16 games from 2011 to 2018, missed four games in 2019, but then played 16 out of 16 games in 2020 and 16 of 17 games in 2021, only missing five games in his entire 11-year career. That's very remarkable uh, very impressive, too. He finished his career as a four-time Pro Bowl selection with 95 and a half sacks, 149 quarterback hits, 120 tackles for loss, 457 combined tackles, and 26 forced fumbles. What a great career for Kerrigan. Wishing him the best in retirement as well. And then Derek Wolf, the next player who retired, was a former 2012 second-round pick for the Denver Broncos. The defensive lineman did not play in 2021. Last played in 2020 for the Baltimore Ravens. Spent eight years with Denver. Won a Super Bowl with them in 2016. And then was also in Baltimore for one year with the Ravens. Had a career year in his second-to-last season in 2019. Had a career-high seven sacks. Also added 12 QB hits and eight tackles for loss in 2019. Finished his career with 350 combined tackles, 34 sacks, 81 QB hits, and 52 tackles for a loss, and also a Super Bowl champion in 2016. So a good career for him as well, and wishing him nothing but the best in retirement. So now I'm going to transition to some transactions across the NFL besides retirement and extensions. I'm going to talk about what's going on in training camp, talk about some injuries, and also talk about guys being released. So to start off, D. Ford was released by the 49ers. The pass rusher was traded to the 49ers from the Kansas City Chiefs in March of 2019 for a 2020 second-round pick. Ford, a one-time Pro Bowl selection in 2018, only played 18 games with San Francisco in three years, only playing a total of 378 snaps over the three-year span. The pass rusher had nine and a half sacks in three years in San Francisco, playing just 18 games and making only two starts over that three-year stretch. In those 18 games, he had 14 solo tackles, 10 QB hits, and three forced fumbles to go along with his nine and a half sacks. In his last season in 2018 with the Chiefs, he had a league-leading seven forced fumbles and 13 sacks to go along with 55 combined tackles. He was dominant in 2018 and was just not the player in 2019, 2020, or 2021 with the San Francisco 49ers. They thought they were getting a whole different player like he was playing in Kansas City, but they did not get that same player. He was just plagued with injuries. He did have one sack in his three playoff games, played in San Francisco in 2020, and they run to the Super Bowl, but still a failed journey for him in San Francisco with the Niners. Next up, I'm going to talk about the Baker Mayfield versus Sam Donald competition for the starting job in training camp in Carolina. The former first and third overall picks of the 2018 NFL Draft are battling it out for the starting job. I know I said before I think Donald beats him out for the starting job. And once again, I'm going to stay with that. I think Sam Donald will be their starting quarterback against the Cleveland Browns week one. I think that Carolina Panthers team is a better team with him under center. He did outperform Mayfield in day one of training camp by daylight. Mayfield was 9-16 with no touchdowns and an interception. Donald was 11-14 for 14 with five touchdowns and a pick. So it wasn't much there since it's only training camp. But I think at the end of the day, hopefully, I think Donald ends up winning that job. And that's my projection as of now. I'll definitely be talking about it a ton since I think it's a great quarterback matchup with the first and third overall picks going at it. I think it makes a very interesting storyline. 
it'll probably end up being close, and they'll probably end up letting them play it out during the preseason to see who ends up being the starting quarterback. But if it was my decision as of right now, I'm going with Sam Donald, not just based off of the 11 for 14, five touchdowns to one pick. I'm basing it off of who I think is the better quarterback if they could take their talent and put it all on the table and actually play to the best of their ability. I think Donald has better arm talent. I think he ends up being the starting quarterback week one. But I think things will be interesting there to see how things play out. And at the end of the day, as I said, they'll probably let them play it out during the preseason, let them play two or three games, each get snaps of the first-team offense to see who ends up being that starting quarterback. So now I'm going to talk about a few injuries, some tough breaks, so two rookie wide receivers, Chiefs rookie wide receiver and former Clemson stud receiver Justin Ross, who missed the entire 2022 season with a foot injury, just had foot surgery recently in the offseason. He was an undrafted free agent in the 2022 draft due to spine and foot injury concerns. He had a Clemson, but he was such a stud at Clemson, had 17 touchdowns combined between his freshman and sophomore seasons in 2018 to 2019. An injury play 2020 and 2021 prevented him from being a first, second, or third round pick. I thought he could have definitely been a first round pick talent-wise just based off what he did in his first two years. But then with the spine injury and the foot injury, I still thought he could have been a third round pick. Ends up falling out of the whole draft. Becomes an undrafted free agent. Signs with the Chiefs, but his rookie season is over before it even began. So tough break there for Justin Ross, as I said, especially over the last two years with his injuries. Only had three touchdowns this past year at Clemson in 10 games due to the injuries, but such a stud talent-wise, and I feel like he could have been a top pick in the draft had he not gotten injured his third and fourth years at Clemson. Goes back for fourth year just to give it a shot and maybe try to be drafted higher than he would have been after the spine injury his third year, but ends up hurting his foot and ends up becoming an undrafted free agent. Tough luck there for Ross, but I'm wishing him nothing but the best in his recovery. Next up, Another sad story, John Mechie third wide receiver, former Bama stud wideout and now Houston Texans wideout, was diagnosed with a type of leukemia and is, is expected to miss the entire season this year for the Texans. My thoughts and prayers are with Mechie and hope he recovers quickly. Supposedly, it is the most curable form of leukemia, which is good news, so I am wishing him nothing but the best in his recovery and hope he's back on the field again soon. He had six touchdowns in 2020 and caught eight touchdowns in 2021 before tearing his ACL with Alabama in the SEC Championship in December. He had 1,142 yards of 96 catches and eight touchdowns with Bama in 13 games this past season. Was drafted in the second round, 44th overall by the Houston Texans, and just looked to be a stud in the league right away and had a tough break right to the start of his career, just like Justin Ross. So hopefully both of those guys are back out on the field again soon. I'm wishing them nothing but the best in their recovery. Next up, defensive lineman Carlos Dunlap signed a one-year deal worth up to $8 million with the Kansas City Chiefs. Former Cincinnati Bengals second-round pick in 2010 and a two-time Pro Bowl defensive lineman. Had eight and a half sacks this past season with the Seattle Seahawks. He had six-plus sacks in each of the last nine seasons and had seven and a half sacks in eight of the last nine seasons. He was traded in October of 2020 from the Cincinnati Bengals to the Seattle Seahawks. He had 82 and a half sacks in 11 seasons with the Cincinnati Bengals. He had 13 and a half sacks in two seasons with Seattle. Still a very productive player and a great pickup by the Kansas City Chiefs. He's going to help them heavily in the pass rush game. And he still, as I said, he still can get to the quarterback. Seven and a half sacks this past year with the Seattle Seahawks. Eight and a half sacks, actually, even better. Eight and a half sacks this past year with the Seattle Seahawks. He can still get to the quarterback. He's actually 29th all-time in tackles for a loss with 117. 13th among active players. Eighth among active players with 96 career sacks. So... If you look at all his accolades, you can't deny how much talent he's had and how much success he's had in the NFL. And then you look at what he's still doing. As I said, eight and a half sacks this past year with Seattle, 13 and a half sacks in the last two years with the Seahawks. 
and then 82 and a half sacks in 11 years with the Cincinnati Bengals. Very productive player, still has a ton of talent, still has some left in the tank. He'll definitely help them get to the quarterback and pressure the quarterback, which they struggled with at times last year. I know they still have some guys there on the defense that are very good, like Chris Jones, defensive lineman, got paid a ton of money. But now they have another pass rush to help them out. That's a great pickup by them. So the next move, free agent wide receiver Julio Jones had a one-year $6 million deal with the Tampa Bay Bucks. Here's what I'm going to start with. I don't think he's the Julio Jones he once was. I don't think you can say he is the Julio Jones he once was. But in this Bucks offense, he doesn't have to be the wide receiver one. He doesn't have to be the wide receiver two. He doesn't even have to kind of be the wide receiver three. I mean, the wide receiver three could be Russell Gage. He could be the wide receiver four in this system and thrive. Or wide receiver three, either one. I mean, talent-wise, probably better than Gage talent-wise. But Gage is a lot younger and healthier. If you look at Julio, he's missed 14 games over the last two seasons. Not the player he once was, but I think he'll be good as a wide receiver three or a wide receiver four in the system. I think Russell Gage, as of now, has the edge to be wide receiver three since he's younger and also stays healthy. But I think Julio Jones will thrive in this system as a wide receiver three or wide receiver four. Seven-time Pro Bowler, two-time first-team All-Pro, three-time second-team All-Pro, was a Pro Bowl in six straight seasons from 2014 to 2019. But Jones is not the player he once was, as I said. He only has four touchdowns in the last two seasons and has not amassed a 1,000 yards in any season since 2019. He won't do much, though, with Godwin and Mike Evans taking the wide receiver one and wide receiver two responsibilities. But I do think he will help them out heavily. Just a wide receiver three, maybe even a wide receiver four off the bench, as I said. He had 434 yards and one touchdown with 31 receptions in 10 games for the Tennessee Titans in 2021. Was traded from Atlanta to Tennessee in June of 2021 with a 2023 sixth-round pick for a 2022 second-round pick from the Tennessee Titans. If you look at what he's done over his career, he's actually 11th among active players in touchdowns with 61 receiving touchdowns, third among active players with 879 receptions. He's 25th all-time in receptions. Also, he's second among active players in receiving yards with 13,330 receiving yards, which is actually good enough for 17th all-time in NFL history. So as, as you can see, very prized and talented wide receiver. He's a great player, Julio Jones, but I don't think he's the player he once was. But who knows? Brady can bring out the best of his wide receivers. If you look at Brady's career, he's had guys like Brashad Perryman this last year and Antonio Brown two years ago. No one wanted Antonio Brown. Goes to the Bucks, ends up thriving in that system. And you know Julio Jones' talent. I mean, he's such a talented wide receiver. He's just not the player he once was because of all those injuries. As I said, he's missed 14 games over the last two years because he can't stay in the field. But in this system, he doesn't have to put in too much work. He doesn't have to be the wide receiver one or wide receiver two. He doesn't have to be the wide receiver three, honestly. He could be the wide receiver four in this system and have a great season. So not a bad pickup for them. So the second to last deal I'm going to talk about, the New England Patriots signed defensive lineman Devon Godshaw to a two-year $20.8 million extension with $17.85 million guaranteed. Bill Belichick called him yesterday one of the best defensive linemen in the NFL. With that being said, though, I do think it's an overpay. But he did have the fourth most tackles among defensive tackles in the NFL last year with 65 combined tackles. So his number's not bad. He had 65 combined tackles in a poor Patriots run defense. They weren't really stopping the run too much. I think he's overpaid because of that. I mean, I think he could have maybe done more. But 65 tackles was fourth best among defensive tackles. As I said, I still think it's an overpay, but now he's the 14th highest paid interior defensive lineman in the NFL. But Belichick clearly likes him. And at the end of the day, Belichick's the GM, the head coach. He might even be calling plays in the Patriots' offensive system this year. He's been calling plays the last couple days, yesterday and Wednesday, the last two days. I'm not sure what he did today. But Wednesday and Thursday, he was calling plays during training camp. So Belichick can really do whatever he wants in that system for the Patriots, whether it's head coaching, GM, or calling plays, and hey, he paid Godshaw, and at the end of the day, he has the power to do it. So two years, $20.8 million might be a lot of money, but 
He is fourth best among defensive tackles last year in tackles with 65. So his numbers weren't really eye-gouging when you're looking at them, but at the end of the day, he ends up getting paid right before he was actually going to be up for contract. He signed a two-year deal with the Patriots last offseason, so he's going into a contract here this year. I thought maybe you let him have one more good year, maybe put up better numbers, and then pay him, but... At the end of the day, Pedro's paid him early. Maybe it saves you money at the end of the day if he has a good year. Like the Giants paid Lennon Williams after he had a good year, and you end up giving him $24 million a year. So what can you do at the end of the day there? Next up, free agent linebacker Quan Alexander signed a one-year deal with the New York Jets to reunite with former defensive coordinator in San Francisco, Robert Sala. Sala is now the head coach of the New York Jets. Alexander was a 2017 Pro Bowl selection, had three and a half sacks with New Orleans last season, and 50 tackles in 12 games this past year. He has been hurt the last four seasons, though, missing 27 games while playing only 38. In his first three years in the NFL, though, he was elite for the Bucks tackling-wise. For Tampa Bay, he had 90-plus tackles in each of his first three seasons after being a Bucks fourth-rounder in 2015. Great value being a fourth-rounder and coming in, getting 90-plus tackles in three straight years. He had 93 combined tackles in 2015, missed four games. Had 145 tackles in 2016, only season of his career, of his seven-year career, that is, that he's played more than 12 games. He played all 16 in 2016, and then in 2017, he did miss four games and had 97 combined tackles. But he was such a great player his first three years in the NFL, then the next three years or so have just been injury-plagued seasons, last four years, that is, missing 27 games. So, still a great talent, though. I think he's a very good player, and at the end of the day, if he can play 10 to 12 games for you and help you in your defensive game tackling-wise, that's not a bad pickup. So once again, another good pickup there by the Jets, and I'm sure Salah's happy to have him back on his defense now that he's the head coach of the Jets, gets him back after they were together in San Francisco a few years ago when Salah was the defensive coordinator there. So the last move I'm going to weigh in on, DK Metcalf, Seattle Seahawks wide receiver, agreed on a three-year, $72 million extension. He's now the sixth-highest-paid wide receiver in the NFL. Got a ton of money from them. $30 million guaranteed in a signing bonus, which is actually the highest for any wide receiver in NFL history. The deal does keep him in Seattle until he's 27 years old. And if you look at it, he's the sixth-highest-paid player in the NFL now, only behind Tyreek Hill, Devontae Adams, DeAndre Hopkins, Cooper Cup, and A.J. Brown. Now, if you look at it, I think... Once Debo Samuel gets his money, he's probably going to base it off of this and maybe get $25 million. That could be coming very soon, they're saying, with the San Francisco 49ers, since they do not want to lose Debo Samuel. But if you look at it, Metcalf has played very well over his NFL career. He's never missed one game, playing all 16 games in 2019, all 16 games in 2020, and then all 17 games in 2021. He had the best season of his career touchdown-wise this past year with 12 touchdowns, along with 967 receiving yards off 75 receptions. He was an all-pro and a pro bowler in 2020, though, with 1,303 yards off 83 receptions and 10 touchdowns. He had 400 more receiving yards almost, 336 receiving yards more in 2020 than he had in 2021, but did add two extra touchdowns. He's a very physical receiver that can go up and get you a jump ball. He also is very physical in the game, too, when he's when he's trucking guys. He can use his body to his advantage. He is a bigger receiver, 6'4", 235 pounds. 24 years old, too, so he's still young. Has 29 touchdowns in his three-year career to go along with 3,170 receiving yards and 216 receptions. Very good player, very good pickup for them. And you look at his yards per catch, 14.7 in his NFL career in three years and also has a career long of 84 yards to go along with a 64.7 yards per game total on average. So Seattle ends up breaking the bank, giving him his money. 
But I do not think this Seattle Seahawks team is going anywhere. Chris Carson just retired. You traded Russell Wilson. You lost Carlos Dunlap in free agency now. You also lost KJ Wright a couple years ago now. He retires. You lost Bobby Wagner in the offseason. And you have Drew Locke and Geno Smith as your quarterback. So I do not think DK Metcalf has as good of a season this upcoming year since he doesn't have Russell Wilson throwing him the ball anymore. But at the end of the day, we'll see what happens there. So to close out the episode, I'm just going to transition back to the MLB for one quick second to talk about trade rumors. So supposedly Juan Soto could potentially be moved in the next upcoming days before the weekend. As I said, the Nationals are going to offer him one more contract extension offer. And if he says no to it, they're going to end up dealing him before that deadline on August 2nd. So it's going to be very interesting this weekend to see what happens there. I think they end up getting a ton of prospects in return. I think it would take a team's whole farm system basically to get him probably three or four top prospects and maybe a couple other pieces whether it's a major league level piece or a defined player on a major league club which i'm sure they're going to want a ton in return i don't know how you can't get one soto without giving up a ton in return you can't get him without giving up a lot just like the same thing with Shoei otani you're not going to get either one of those for loose change same thing with kevin durant which i'm going to talk about in my next episode when I talk about the NHL draft that will be coming in the next few days, you're not going to get Kevin Durant for chump change. You're not going to get Juan Soto or Shohei Otani for nothing. You're going to have to give up a ton for either one of those three guys. So at the end of the day, we're going to see what happens here with the Juan Soto trade. I will be keeping you guys updated over the next few days. But anyways, thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this. I really appreciate it. Hope you guys have a great Friday. Thank you guys and have a good one. Thank you.